Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, we were were talking this morning. Um, Welcome. Glad you guys are here this morning, all that stuff. We really are. Oh, we really are. We're really excited that you're here. <laughs> I'm not just saying that, but well, I, I, I don't want to forget this thought that this morning we were talking um, before worship began, and, and we were talking about the fact that we don't ever want this to be a time where we just gather together and sing, where we're just, because there's words on a screen and there's music coming through speakers, that we just, we just sing and sing along the way we do in the car when we're just driving and we're just kind of without even realizing they're singing along to something, but but that we want it to be a time of us actually declaring God's truth and, and mixing our faith with the declaration of God's Word, like we talked about last week. And So when we, when we sing, you are good, it's us declaring a truth that we believe and we put our faith in and we say, God, you're good. We don't just sing along, and I'll sing because you are good. You know what I mean? Like We don't ever want it to be that, where you're just going through the motions, but we want to actually declare, God, you're good. And we're putting our faith in that and we're, we're declaring a truth that we believe and mixing our faith with the declaration of His Word like Peter talks about. And, um, and man, it is so, so important that we do that in our lives. That your life, your, your words agree with something. Everything that you speak agrees with something. You're putting your faith in something. And if we're putting our faith in God and we're agreeing with His Word and we're agreeing with Him and what He has said and who He's called us to be and who He said that He is then we see the fruit of that in our lives. And so um, we talked about that a little bit last week, and we're going to be really getting into the covenant of Abraham this morning because I, I just believe that, that God wouldn't have warned us that my people perish for a lack of knowledge if His people, weren't His people, weren't perishing for a lack of knowledge. His people, good people. It doesn't say people perish. It says my people perish. Good people, born again, Christian people who have no knowledge of what God's promised, who He's promised to be, what He's declared. And so without that knowledge, it's hard to put our faith in it and it's hard to believe it because we don't even know that God's promised it to us. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, believing it shall be done. In order for us to believe a promise of God, we have to know the promises of God over our lives so that we can agree with them and actually put our faith in them. And then when we pray, believing Jesus' promise, that's His words. I know that sounds too good to be true. Whatever things you shall ask in my name, believing it shall be done. You know, we talk about the verse in James a lot because James is so clear on it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of our Heavenly Father who gives freely and liberally. But when that man asks, he must believe that he will have what he's asking for. If he doesn't believe, it's like a man tossed to and fro, unstable in all his ways. Let that man expect that he shall receive nothing. What was the disqualifier? Was it that he was asking for something that God didn't desire to give? Absolutely not. James made it really clear. God loves to give wisdom liberally and freely. Had nothing to do with God's desire and God's intention. It had everything to do with his belief that what he was asking for, God would give. And if we have to believe when we ask, then we have to know that what we're asking is his will and his desire and his promise for our lives so that we can actually believe. Otherwise, we're just kind of shotgun praying, right? Just kind of shooting prayers up in the sky and hoping that something hits something. Right? And that's not how we want to live our lives. We don't want to live our lives with a shotgun prayer type of thing where we just kind of throw out a bunch of prayers and hope that something sticks. Hope that something's true. Hope that something reaches heaven and God answers something. We want to pray prayers knowing that what we're asking is what God has promised and told us to put our faith in. And then we mix our faith with the preaching of the Word. With the declaration of God's Word. And when we do that, then we have every right to expect and believe that God will do, will give, will be who He said He would. You can have two people praying the same prayer and both of them sound the same, but God, while man's looking at the outside, God's busy looking at the heart. It's the reason why, why so many times you see that, that it says in the, word, in the Word of God, your faith, because you believed, your belief, your faith, it always had something to do with the condition of their heart that was towards God. Because God, while hearing the same thing that many other people had prayed, the same thing that many other people had said, some, for some reason He happens to hear and bless this. He happens to hear and do this. And it was always the answer was because of your faith. Always. So Abraham is, is called to leave 
the country where he is brought up, the country where he's, he's been living with his father, with his family, the country where there is, there's prosperity for their hands, the country where, where they live and where they dwell and where everything's familiar and everything's comfortable. But the, the interesting thing about that is that before Abraham left his family to go to Canaan, actually his father Terah left the land where he lived in Ur to go to Canaan himself. Genesis 11.31. We're going to be all over the Word today. And I, and I am more excited about this message, this series of messages, than I think maybe I've ever been in my life. I know I've said that before, but, but, but I'm there again. And um, because it's, it, it is the revelation of God to man of who He is and who He wants to be, of His desire for us and what it looks like to live in relationship with, with a loving Father with the God of the universe as our father. And so Genesis 11.31 says, Terah took his son Abraham and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. They left to enter the land of Canaan. Remember that. That's important. They didn't just leave to go find a better place to live. They didn't just leave to go somewhere else. They didn't just leave just because they wanted to go on a vacation or because they thought maybe there would be somewhere they should go. They left with a specific place in mind. It says they left to go to the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. If you look at a map, if you hear those words, a lot of times it seems like maybe they took off and they were leaving here and they were going here, but they stopped there. But if you actually look at a map of where they went, they were leaving here to go to here and they ended up settling here. But they left to go to Canaan. The idea was we're leaving here to go here. How do we end up here? The reason they ended up there is because the easiest path of travel when leaving the land that they were was to follow the trade routes, to follow the river. And so if you look at their path, it follows the Euphrates River up to the land where they ended up settling. But they were going to Canaan. They they left there to go one place and they ended up in another place. And yeah, it wasn't where they were, but it also wasn't where they were supposed to be. Because we can see later when God talks to Abraham, his desire was for his people to dwell in the land of Canaan. It was always his heart for his people to go to that land and possess that land and to live and dwell in that land that flowed with milk and honey and to possess cities that they hadn't built and to eat of the fruits of vineyards that they hadn't planted and to live under the hand of the Lord and to conquer the land and to all those things that God has been speaking about. It's always been his desire. So how does one man leave here, heading here, and end up there? It's the same way that you and I leave where we're at going to where God's calls us to and end up somewhere else it's because sometimes the easy route isn't the way that god wants us to go because sometimes the tried and true and trusted way that has a bunch of trails along it where there's a bunch of other people traveling and it seems safe we'll be safe we won't have to worry about people taking our possessions stealing our goods harming us it's an easy path we won't have to cut any trees along the way we won't have to do anything like that there's already a trail blaze there's a there's a clear-cut route along this river and so let's take off along this river and let's see where we end up and we end up somewhere so far from where god wanted us and from where we intended to go because and rather than going directly to where god's called us to we decide that we're going to go but we're going to kind of take our own way and so yeah i'm not where i was but i'm also not where god wants me to be and if i judge myself based on my own standards i can look back and i could say yeah but at least i'm not where i was but the problem is is that's not good enough because that's not what god desires it's just for us to be able to look back and say well i'm better than i was well this land is 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 better than where we were. That's not what he desired. It wasn't good enough just to settle somewhere that was better. What he wanted was the best. It's always like that, right? The call is always the same to everyone. It's always leave where you are when the Spirit of God starts moving inside of you and pointing out where you are in your life and, and the life that you're living. And, and you look around and you realize, man, I, I, I and myself am nothing but a sinner and I deserve judgment and I need a savior and God's calling you. He's calling you not just to go a little bit farther than where you are, just to be a little bit better than where you were. He doesn't just want to fix you up a little bit. He wants to make you a brand new creation in Christ Jesus that looks nothing like the one that you're leaving behind. So don't follow the river. In my opinion, the river in this case is a lot of times, and this is not a knock against anything, but the river happens to be just say a prayer. Repeat after me. Now you're saved.
Now you're born again. Now you're a Christian. Now go back and live your life and just know that one day when you die, you'll go to heaven because you said a prayer. That's the easy route. That's the tried and true. That's the familiar. That's the path of least resistance. That's the doesn't require a whole lot out of me besides that I come up and repeat after somebody and then return back to my normal life and live the same way I did before but know that I'll go to heaven anyways when I die because I said a prayer one time. I'm not judging whether people are saved or not by doing that, but I am saying this. It's not what God desires for our lives. It's not where God wants us to settle. Asking Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life is a step on a journey. And it never is intended to end here. It's always intended to end there. And what is the goal of salvation? That we would become transformed more and more by the glory of God into the image of His Son. It was never to just be a little bit better. It was never for me to look like me, but just a little bit better. Now I don't cuss, and now I don't do drugs, and now I don't drink, and now I don't do those things that I used to do. So I can look back and say, see, where I am is better than where I was, but where I am has nothing to do with what God intends for me. God intends for me not to do any of that stuff, but not because He just wants to fix me up. God intends for me not to do that stuff because I'm in love with Him, and the way I live my life is a reflection of that. And so the things that I do and I don't do are based out of relationship with Him, not a set of rules that I follow so that I can say, see, I'm doing a little better. If we stop there and pitch our tent there, it's a dangerous place to live. Tara is mentioned again in the Word. Anybody remember? He's kind of a footnote. He ends his life just kind of a, a footnote in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. That's it. That's all we hear. Terah is not mentioned again. Yeah, he made it from where he was to a different place, but what did it profit him? Because in the end, what's written about him is that he served other gods. So now God calls Abraham. Oh, I was wondering if that was one of my kids up front crinkling. It's Annie, our keyboard player. It's okay, you can laugh if you think it's funny. Like, I promise, no, the fun police didn't show up yet. I haven't seen them come through the back door yet. When they do, I'll let you know and you can get real serious. So now God calls Abraham, right? And so in Genesis 12, this is God speaking to Abram. At the time, his name's Abram, right? He hasn't become Abraham yet. We're going to talk about that in weeks to come. But it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless those, and I will curse those. And, and, and who, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in all the families of, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, I, I, just, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that we have a record of you speaking to us. Of you speaking to man. Of your heart. Your desire. God, of who you are and who you've called us to be. I ask that as we, as we speak today from your word, Holy Spirit, that you would just open our, our minds to be able to understand, our, our ears to hear, our hearts to, to receive and to believe so that by faith we become more and more transformed every day into the image of Jesus Christ. That we never settle in a land you don't intend for us to stay in. God, that we follow you where you've called us to go. Even if it's not the easiest and the most comfortable and the most well-known and the safest route, God, that we follow your voice, believing that you're good. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the call is always to give up what you have and where you are to go to another place, right? We see this all over throughout the Bible. It's a thread that is kind of common. And, uh, you know, he calls up the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he says, just go. You don't have to worry about how you're going to get there. You don't even have to worry about where you're going. Just trust that I'm taking you to a land that I will show you. 
Well, how will we do this? Don't worry about it. You just follow my lead, right? It's always like that. It's Saul on a road to Damascus on a, on a pony and, and, or a donkey, and he gets struck blind. And the call from God is, is that, Saul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you out, and you're going to be a, my ambassador. And how? And all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of times in our lives, we always want to know the how. Right? We're, we're human. We want to know how. So when God says something, it's like, well, how, God? How will this happen? And, and you know, the truth of the matter is, is that's perfectly okay to ask God how. The problem is, is that we can't delay doing what He's called us to do, waiting on that answer. It's okay to get before God and say, God, I heard what you promised me. I hear what you're telling me to do, but I need to know how. If God says go, we just start going and trust that the how will be revealed to us as we go. Notice that he told them to walk towards the, the Red Sea. He doesn't say anything about the fact that he's going to part it for them. Why? Because it didn't have anything to do with what they were going to do. He just wanted them to trust him and obey him and walk by faith. And then he would provide a way. Leads them through a desert. They'd have no capability of making boats. A lot of times God will take us into a place where we lack the capability in ourselves. And by looking around, we can't figure out exactly how he's going to do what he's calling us to do. And it's because he wants us to come to a place of trust. If they would have been in a forest rather than a desert, they would have started making boats when they saw the ocean. And God didn't have that for them. That wasn't his desire. Don't start trying to make a boat when God hasn't called you to. Right? But don't be like the people who lived in Noah's day and laugh when God calls a man to. Just because he didn't call you to doesn't mean he hasn't called somebody else to. Right? There's sometimes where people, you know, we can look down on other people because we feel like we've achieved this level. And you hear people say, I just live by faith. No, the truth is everyone lives by faith. We all live by faith. It's just a question of what our faith is in. Living by faith is not an employment status. It's a condition of the heart. Okay? Never buy into this thing that if I'm living by faith, I can't have a steady job. I can't have a community of people that I'm involved with on a regular basis. I can't be committed to anything because I just live by faith. Living by faith is not a status of employment. Living by faith is not a a status and and a passport to flakiness. You can be fully committed, have a great job, and have a bunch of things that you do and live by faith in God because it's a position of a surrendered heart. It has nothing to do with outside stuff. And sometimes we, we kind of look down, right? Like, like, put it the other way. What if the children of Israel would have walked up and saw Noah building an ark? What are you doing building an ark? Why? Because God's going to flood the earth. Dude, you don't have to build a boat. God's going to flood the earth. He'll part the ocean so that you can walk through it. Just have faith. See, the problem is, is that he said one thing to one person and he said another thing to another. And if we try to make everybody fit into the mold that God's called us to be in, what we're going to do is we're going to judge what it is to live by faith by what I'm doing to live by faith. And then we'll judge everybody that's not doing what I'm doing as doing the opposite, as not living by faith. We have to be real careful to understand that God speaks to us as individuals. Yeah, he speaks corporate things to us, but he also speaks to us individually. And just because the calling on your life doesn't look like the calling on somebody else's doesn't give us the right to start judging whether they're living their lives in according to God's word or by faith. That needs to just get broken off of the church. Stop being religious about not being religious. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't do that. I'm just not religious. Well, for one thing, the Word of God tells us to be religious in this, that it says this is true religion, that you give to the orphans and to the widows and that you keep yourself from being abstained by the world. Okay, so there's a religion that pleases God. So there should be a little bit of religion in every single one of us. We've made it out to be some demon that if people say that they're religious, that that means that they have no faith and that they're legalistic. And fall into that. It's okay. To believe that the same principles that God declared in His Word and that people live by in His Word are okay for us to live by today. It's not a bad thing. Let's call it what it is, right? Someone needed to hear that. That was so far from my notes. (laughs) So far, that was free. Don't raise your hand. Right, but this is where it requires faith because now God's calling Abraham to give up and leave everything that he has and to go to a place that he's called him to go. Abraham says yes. Children of Israel, 400 years later, needed faith to believe that God was bringing them to a land that flowed with milk and honey whose fruit of the vine was so huge that they couldn't even imagine it. 
and that they were going to possess cities that they didn't build and that they were going to eat from vineyards that they didn't plant. They needed faith to just believe that the land was there and that it was as good as God says. And by faith, they walked towards the land. And when they arrive there, they see that it is as good as God said and it is what he promised. There are cities and vineyards and milk and honey, all this stuff. And now their faith goes from needing faith to believe to get there to needing faith to believe that they're going to actually be able to possess it. And what started in faith turns into a wage. It turns into a work. It was a gift. It was faith. And they started out walking by faith. And then they started to turn it into a wage because they started to look at what can we do with our hands to possess this land when God never called them to do anything with their hands outside of what He said He would do through them. And they turned the gift into a wage because the faith that got them there wasn't strong enough for them to be able to see that everything God had promised He would be able to do. And so they saw the land but they didn't see that God was the same God that brought them there was the same God that was going to deliver it to them. And because of this, only two of them were able to enter in. See, God's outside of time. We have to understand this. God is outside of time. He doesn't see linearly. That is something that screws up so much of our theology is trying to force God into a box where He sees this and then He sees that and then He sees that like He's like us and sees things as they unfold as if anything happens that He didn't know was going to happen. And then we say, well, if He knew it was going to happen, then He wanted it to. You have to understand that to break that thinking, you have to remove God from time and realize He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the the end and just because he sees it happen doesn't mean he wants it to happen otherwise he wouldn't tell us not to do things and to do things because everything that happens is what he said to do think about it if god's a puppet master then how can he tell you not to do something if he's controlling everything that happens and every single thing that happens is because he wants it to why would he ever tell you not to do something So he's outside of time and, 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 he, and he calls the children of Israel to this land and he says, I, you guys are going to possess this land. Why? Because he sees the day that two men will combine faith with the declaration of his word and will go in and lead an army into there and they will possess the land. So he's calling them what they're not before they are. He says to Gideon, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Gideon's hiding in a wine press, scared to death, won't even make wheat in public. And he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Why? Because he sees the day that Gideon will put faith into what he's declared and will become exactly what he's called him. He's speaking to him prophetically and all he's waiting for is somebody to believe what he said and put their faith in it to become it. And then the prophecy is fulfilled. You have to understand that, that there's so many things that God's called us that we don't see in our lives. And it's not because God doesn't desire it. It's because He's waiting for us to actually put our faith in it and act as though what He said is true. And then guess what? The prophecy is fulfilled. Gideon becomes the mighty man of valor. When? When he put his faith in what God said and he trusted God and he obeyed God. And he did what God called him to do. He leads the children of Israel to an amazing, you know, just a, a staggering victory. Undermanned, undersoldiered, undertrained underweaponed yet Gideon the mighty man of valor who was hiding in a wine threshing a wine press threshing wheat becomes a mighty man of valor God spoke it to him and it was true but it took Gideon actually believing what God said to see it come to pass God spoke this to the children of Israel and it was true the day he said it he said it to Abraham 400 years before that that I'm giving you this land to your descendants they will possess it I have given you the land he then declares it again to the Israelites I have given you the land all he's waiting for is them to actually believe that he's given them the land and then go into it as if it's theirs all they had to do is walk into the land understanding God's given us this land. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm not sure how we're going to displace these giants. I don't know how we're going to defeat the people, but I do know the who. Never confuse H-O-W with W-H-O. The how wasn't important. It was the who that mattered. So God calls him into Canaan, right? Why did He call him into Canaan? You ever think about that? Why? Of all the places on earth, why did he call him into Canaan? Anybody? You ever thought about that? Canaan is just this mythical place where unicorns live or what? Come on. There was a reason he called him to Canaan. Sure, it was a good land, but there had to be other good lands, right? Yeah, I mean, there was vineyards there. There had to be other vineyards, other places in the world. Why, why did he call them specifically to Canaan? It was because that was where the kingdom of the, of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, had set up shop. 
And so he calls his people directly to the place where the kingdom of this world has set up shop because it's always his desire to bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on the kingdom of the enemy. And so he calls them to the very place where the kingdom of the enemy has set up shop. He says, go to this land. The Amorites are there. It's all the ungodly people. It's all the people who had engaged in all the behaviors that God had told them not to. And they have openly defied God. Remember, God said to Abraham, your your people are going to go into captivity for 400 years because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, they haven't completely done everything that they're going to do yet that I'm going to judge them for. And I'm going to use the people of of Israel to, to bring my judgment upon them. And when they do in 400 years, once that sin is complete, once they've done the things that I've told them not to do and the judgment is due to them, I'm going to bring my people in there and I'm going to judge them. And so he leads them straight to where the kingdom of darkness is set up shop. And Paul writes, we battle not against flesh and blood. When we read that and we think this is Paul saying, you know, like to us, well, don't be mad at people when they cuss at you. Right? When someone does something you don't like or somebody steals something, it's not them. The problem is the spirit that's controlling them. Yeah, that's true. But he was also writing this to people who had grown up their whole lives understanding that the army of God always took vengeance on the army of this world and so there was literally a physical battle always going on between the army of god and the enemy and the army of this world the kingdom of this world they were always meeting in physical battle and fighting in physical battle a lot of god's promises to them were that he would be the one who would destroy them through his hand so this was always going on and so now paul when he writes this he's not saying like hey guys Don't be mad at people when they do this. What he's saying is, you guys, no longer do we fight against flesh and blood. No longer are you going to pick up a sword and have to march to a land to actually physically fight another race of people. We battle now not with people, but with the powers that control the people because the people are who God, Jesus, came to save. Jesus comes and He walks on the earth and He instantly shows a different way because He goes straight after the powers that are influencing people all the time while loving people. See, before the army of God would march through into the kingdom of darkness and they would lay behind them a trail of bloody bodies laying on the ground, hacked to pieces. It's just the truth. I know it's gruesome, but it's the truth. God forbid that the church goes marching into the kingdom of darkness now and leave behind a bunch of bloody bodies hacked to pieces. A bunch of wounded people laying around because the army of God came in and decided to fight them the way that they used to be fought. Rather than understanding it's not the people that we fight against. It's the powers that are controlling. It's the rulers and principalities of the darkness. See, that's why we truly can love sinners while hating sin. People say, oh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. I've heard people say that all the time. That's just an excuse. That's a cover-up because you really hate the people. No, we really love the people. We really hate the sin that they're engaged in because it's hurting them, because it's harming them, because we've seen the wages of what it does, and it's death. Because they're living so far below where God's called them to live. It's never, it's never because they're, they're not good people. It's because they're living their lives as though they're not good people. It's never because they're not good enough. It's because they've settled for living their lives at a place that's not good enough. It's never because they're a failure. It's because they've failed to see what God has offered and what God has promised to them. And what they need is somebody to come along who believes in the goodness of God like we just declared and actually speak to them about who God's called them to be and about who God wants to be in their lives rather than about the things that they're doing that keep them from being that. If the best we have is, come on, it's better than hell. Something's wrong. I'm serious, you guys. If the best that we have to offer people is, well, it's better than the alternative. Something is wrong. If you come to my house and I tell you, I make, I make burgers. Are they good? Well, I mean, you ever had a really bad, charred, dried out, crispy burger? Well, they're, they're better than that. That doesn't really inspire me to want to try the burger, right? I'm, just because it's a little better than the worst case scenario doesn't make me want what you have. Our lives shouldn't be offering people just a little bit better than the worst case scenario. They should be showing people the goodness and the fullness and the richness of salvation and what it means to be born again. And we display that in our words, but more importantly, in our deeds and in our actions. We have to live a life, you guys, that reflects what we say and what we believe to be true. If I walk around angry and irritable and being a jerk to everybody that comes across my path, there's not much chance when I start telling them about how God brings love and joy they're going to believe me. 
If I'm choking down that hamburger and acting like I'm going to vomit the whole time, you don't really believe me when I tell you how good it is. Mm, it's good. Nobody believes that. Why would they? You know, you, you need to stop living that way. That, that, that is just, you are a screw-up, and I can't believe you would do that. And don't you see what's wrong with you? And why would you ever do that? You better stop that, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. God loves you, and He brings joy into your life. You get born again, you can be like me, happy. Where, where are you going? Get back here! I'm not through with you! You guys are laughing because you know people who have done it. Don't you raise your hand. (laughs) Don't you raise your hand. All right? It's all right. It's usually the people that are laughing the loudest that have done it themselves. The people who have had it done to them go. The people who have done it go. (laughs) Why would we? What about God do we know that makes us think that that's what we should do I've been told I can't bend over too far in church because I (laughs) I don't pull my pants up high enough my little brother told me that one time he said something about um I can't remember what he was saying. He said, well, you don't have a whole lot of room to talk, bro, because I've seen the color of your underwear like five times at church today. <laughs> so Jesus now is writing, and, and we're going we're gonna to move this into to the promise of Abraham, but real quickly, just to tie that up, Jesus is writing, uh, or speaking, and he says, these things I've spoken to you, John sixteen thirty three. these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And then 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, Jesus wasn't saying, go out and just live your life oblivious to who you are in me, oblivious to the promises that I've made you, and just expect that everything that I want to happen is going to happen in your life because I've overcome the world. Because then we read John saying that what overcomes the world is our faith. Faith in what? Ourselves? No, faith in Jesus. The fact that He did what He said He would do. So we actually believe it. So when you're walking through this life and an obstacle comes, rather than looking at your hands and deciding whether you're capable of overcoming the obstacle yourself, you understand that you belong to and are in covenant with one who has already overcome. And though you may not know how, you know who. And you put your faith in that and you keep on walking, expecting fully that what He said He would do, He would. You never stop and start looking and taking inventory and going, it's this big and it's that wide and I only have this and what do I have in my hands? It doesn't matter what you have in your hands. It's what you have in your heart. Because what overcomes the world is this, our faith. And we're more than conquerors. Well, I don't feel like a conqueror. That's because you don't believe that you are. Because God called you a conqueror. So who's right? I'm going to go with God every time I ask that question. Okay, just spoiler alert for all of you that come here, all right? Now you know. Whenever I ask that question, the answer is going to be God. He said you're more than a conqueror. Well, I don't feel like a conqueror. Maybe he was speaking about the day that you would actually believe that you are and you would become more than a conqueror. Maybe he was speaking about the day that you would act in faith and mix faith with the preaching of the Word of God. So you hear that you're more than a conqueror, you start to believe that you're more than a conqueror, and then you act as though you're more than a conqueror, and suddenly the prophecy is fulfilled. Because God sits outside of time. And see, He calls you that even when you're not. Because He sees the day that you will believe. And the prophecy will be fulfilled. It's always been like that. Tells Abraham, same thing. You're going to be the father of many nations. Why? Because He sees the day that Abraham will believe Him. And the promise will come to pass in his life. And the prophecy will be fulfilled. Abraham doesn't see it. Abraham's natural reaction is to look around and say, well, well, how is this going to happen? Right? How is that going to happen? Genesis 15, and here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 
Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it unto him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go into your father's place. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To the descent to your descendants I have given this land I have given this land. From the river of the Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim and the Amorite, and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. He tells Abram, great will be your reward. And Abram answers, what will you give me? Because I'm childless and I don't have an heir. Before we go further, I just that stuck out to me when I read that. How many of us, if God promised to bless us, would immediately think of who we can pass that blessing along to? See, it starts to reveal to us already what kind of a man Abraham was, why he was the kind of man that God wanted to enter into covenant with and why God chose him to be the father of many nations. Because rather than saying, awesome, how, what are you going to bless me with? You've got to realize this is God speaking to Abraham. Okay, God, Abram believes that God is the God who created the earth. So when he speaks to him and says, I am going to bless you, my natural reaction if God blesses me would be, praise the Lord. Thank you. But Abram immediately wants to know, Oh Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Since you've given me no offspring, give no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Abraham immediately realizes that if God's promising to bless him, he wants to leave this as a legacy to somebody. And his question is, who am I going to give this to? Okay, you're going to bless me, God. You're going to make me great. You're going to do all these things for me. But who am I going to give that to? It shows an attitude in his heart already that said that the blessing that I receive from God isn't just for me, but it has to be for somebody else. So who's this going to go to? I think that would be a really, really wise thing for us to start asking God when God starts speaking to us about blessing is, okay, God, so who am I going to pass this blessing to? Rather than just sitting back and saying, awesome, bless me, Lord. There's nothing wrong with saying, bless me, Lord. But there is something about Abraham's heart that the minute he hears he's going to be blessed, he wants to know, who am I going to pass this blessing on to? He understands that the favor of God is not just for me. It's for me and for others. The blessing of God is not just for me. It's for me and for others. That everything he gives to me, he wants to give through me. I just rhymed. I'm usually not that guy. So God says to him, Notice he doesn't say, how can you? He just says, what will you give me? For I have no one to give it to. God takes him outside and shows him the stars and says, if you can count them, your descendants are going to be like this. And then verse 6, then he believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And this speaks volumes to us because it so mirrors how we find our righteousness in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. A person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
It's a two-part process. I believe in my heart, which gives me right standing with God, and then I confess what I truly believe in my mouth, which leads to salvation, which leads to being sozo, saved, whole, healed, delivered. That's the Greek word there. It's not just simply which leads to me going to heaven one day. That's not what it's boiled down to. If we're not careful, we'll boil down every time it talks of salvation to simply one day in the sweet by and by, I'm going to go to heaven. But that's not what that word means in the original language. It means saved, healed, delivered. So with my heart, I believe unto righteousness. What does that mean? I now have right standing before God because I have believed Him. Because of faith, I have right standing before God. And now I open my mouth and I declare and agree with His promises, which leads to being saved, healed, and delivered. But it starts with a belief in my heart. Notice Abraham. It says that he believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. How did he attain his righteousness? Was it because of the good things he did? No. Had nothing to do with his actions. It had everything to do with the faith that he had and that he believed. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Our belief results in the same thing that Abraham's did when we believe in the promise of God, when we believe. What was Abraham believing in? He was believing that God could and would do everything that he spoke to him and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We believe a word from God that says he sent his son to die on a cross so that we could have everlasting life, so that we could be saved, healed, delivered, so that we could become new creations in Christ, so that the old could pass away and everything could become new, so that we could be seated with him in heavenly realms. All these promises that God speaks to us, we believe them and it results in our righteousness. Our actions don't result in our righteousness. It's not because you did good things. It's not because you stopped drinking, cussing, and chewing. It's not because you stopped doing the things that you shouldn't do. It has nothing to do with that. Those things are a result of righteousness, not a source of it. That action, that right living is a result of right standing. Not the other way around. Everything believes with, begins with belief and right standing before God, believing that God has done what He said and that if we put our faith in that, that we have right standing. It's counted to us as righteousness and we stand before God righteous. That was what qualified Abraham for covenant with God was righteousness through faith. And it's the same thing that qualifies us to live in covenant with God is righteousness through faith. He promises him a son. Abraham believes. He now is in right standing with God. And so God decides to make a covenant with him. Abraham says, okay, I believe these promises. So how will I know that I'll possess it? How will I know that I'll have it? I believe the promises, but how will I know? In other words, what can I hold on to when I look around and I see that I'm 90 years old and that my wife is older than I am? What can I believe when I look around and I see that that everyone's telling me this can't happen? When circumstances look like there's no way that I can have a son, when people come to me and laugh at me and call me a fool, when ideas start popping into my head, God, I, I, I believe you. Now, what can I hold on to to know? How will I know that I'm going to possess what you've told me I'm going to possess? There's nothing wrong with asking God for something to hold on to that will confirm what he said to you. It's why we have to seek him like he says, and then we find him. So that we have something to hold on to, a prophecy, a word, a vision, what God speaks to you, something God shows you. You can hold on to that. And when everybody comes at you and the world comes at you and logic comes at you and circumstance comes at you and everything that came at Abraham, every single thing that comes at us and attacks the promises of God in our lives came at Abraham. His own logic, his reasoning, his experience, his intellect, his friends, the people around him, circumstance, everything tried to come against the plan that God had for him and the promise. But he needed something to hold on to and he God understood this and so he gave him something he says go get me a ram bull or a cow and a goat at this point abraham would have known what was coming sacrifice was not a new thing he would have known can can you imagine you're talking to god okay you are i mean literally he says he appeared to him and spoke to him in a vision so he's seeing something and he's hearing something and you're asking the god that created the universe how am i going to know this and he says to you go get me these things and you understand oh my goodness i am going to enter into a covenant with the living god it's not a light thing this is a big deal the God of the universe, Creator God, who holds the stars in His hand, who measures their span by the span of His hand, is now saying, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. 
And so Abraham goes and gets them and brings them, it says, and he split them in half before him. And he laid the opposing pieces. Now, not to be too brutally graphic, but I bow hunt. And when we get deer out in the field, we field dress them, which is just removing the insides out of them so that the meat doesn't spoil. And doing this is a bloody thing. This is not cutting them in half, which would be far more bloody. This is not doing what Abraham did. This is not with animals the size of three-year-old cows. This is with small deer, and there's blood everywhere. Can you imagine when he was doing this thing and cutting these three animals in half and laying their halves next to each other, the amount of blood, the mess that it would have created, the amount of work, the sweat, the energy that would have went into it. And here he gets done and says, and he laid them opposing each other. So the animals are split in half this way here. And so their ribs would be sticking up like this. And they called out the walls of blood. And they would lay this on each side. And they would lay them facing each other. And the blood from the animals would run down in between the two. And it would create a pathway of blood that they would walk through and pass through. It says Abraham did this and he laid it out. And as soon as he laid it out, what happened? It says the birds of the air tried to come and take what he had put out there. Believe this, when you commit something to God and when you make a sacrifice to God, the enemy is always going to come and try to steal it away. Always. You make a commitment to God. You make a a sacrifice to God. And you say, God, I'm going to give you this time. God, I'm going to sacrifice this time to you. Or God, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to sacrifice this to you. And the next thing you know, the birds of the air are coming and trying to steal. The birds of the air are always a picture of the enemy. When you read through the Bible, just Tom Snyder taught me that. And as you look through and study where it talks about birds of the air every time, it's always talking about the enemy. And so the, the birds of the air come and try to take what Abraham has laid out to sacrifice God, but Abraham just sticks to it and says, I've given this to God, you can't have it. And he fights them off. And then it says he falls into a sleep, a deep sleep. And it says trembling and fear comes over him. The sacrifice has been made, and now God himself is going to finalize the covenant that he's made with Abraham. And the sense that something is happening, something beyond his own understanding, something huge is about to happen, comes over Abraham to the point that it overwhelms him. And he's filled with fear because he has no idea what's going to be asked of him or what God is going to do in making covenant with man. And then God speaks. God will never leave you sitting there in fear as he's doing something in your life without speaking something to you. He does not intend for you to live your life in fear. You may have a sense of awe. You may have a sense of how. You may have a sense of, of whoa. You know, like that heavy feeling that, oh my goodness, I don't know. How is this going to happen? God, what, you know, what's going to happen? You may have that, that almost like a dread as you look forward because you're so anxious and you don't know what God's, how God's going to do what He's called you to do, but He never intends for you to stay there long. And as soon as Abraham starts feeling that, once again, God speaks and says, no for certain. Your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Abraham, you are a godly man who has believed me. I'm making covenant with you. And though your your descendants won't keep the promises of this covenant and they'll be enslaved for 400 years not you you will live in peace and you'll live to be a good old age in other words because of your faith because of your belief abraham you can know this for certain that fear that you feel right now don't be afraid because you will live to be a good old age and you will live in peace all of your days and be buried with your fathers god never intended for him to sit there just in dread and in fear and immediately he speaks to him Reminds me of Matthew 27. When Jesus is being crucified, it says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. When God makes covenant with man, it's literally earth shattering. People say, this is earth shattering news. They have no idea even why they're saying that. 
This is earth-shattering. The rocks shake and split because God is finalizing covenant with man. And it's such a big deal that the earth itself trembles and quakes. Now Abraham's coming into covenant with God where no longer he'll be his own and no longer will God be his own. Because the covenant was two ways. God comes down and he passes through the walls of blood. And what that was signifying was this. The promises that we are making in this covenant, I will keep or let it be done to me as it has been done to these animals. They're cutting a covenant and he's saying, listen to me, you have to understand how seriously I'm taking this. I am going to actually pass through the way human beings would pass through. And I'm going to make this commitment to you that even if it costs me my life, I will keep this covenant to you. And that would change man, right? Because they're completely now in a relationship that can't be severed. Not even death can end this relationship. Not even death can tear this relationship apart. But it would also, in a sense, change God because one day God would have to send His Son who knew no sin to earth to suffer and die to keep the covenant with man and to fulfill the promise that He's made. It's not a light thing. It's not a little deal. It cost Abraham his life here on earth. It would cost God giving up his seed in heaven and coming down and living as a man in order to keep the covenant he made with man, in order to keep the relationship that he promised to have with man. So remember when the, when the Israelites were in Egypt and God was going to judge the land and he said to them, he said, go and take a young lamb and kill it and sacrifice it and take its blood and put it above the doorpost, above the lintel and put it on the sides of the door. And all those who pass through will be passed over and will be safe, will be spared judgment, and will be shown mercy. So the Israelites walk through the walls of blood. And by doing so, they pass through from from judgment into mercy and they're spared. Now Jesus is hanging on a cross. I'm going to wrap up with this because... There's a lot more we're going to get into. We're going to keep talking about the different stages. But Jesus is hanging on a cross. Normally they would take your hands and they would tie them. That was the way the Romans crucified people. Nailing people's hands to the cross was not a standard practice. It was not something that they did. This was different. This was not standard. This was not normal. So they take Jesus and they put Him on the cross and they nail Him. And blood runs down from His hands on either side. Then they take a crown of thorns and they twist it up and they shove it onto his head. That wasn't normal. They didn't do that. See, the way you die from crucifixion is you're strapped to this cross until you no longer can hold the weight of your own body to take breaths and you suffocate and die. That's how you die from crucifixion. It's not from being nailed through your hands and your feet and bleeding to death. It's through suffocation. And sometimes they would come and they would break the legs of the people who were on the cross because they were using their legs to hold themselves up to take breaths. And they wanted the crucifixion to be over with so they could go home. And they would break the legs of the people who were on the cross so that they no longer could use their legs to hold themselves up and they would die. But not Jesus. They take him and they nail him through his hands and blood runs down from his hands. And they put a crown of thorns on his head and blood runs down from the top of his head. And the man who said this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Becomes the walls of blood that we pass through. As we walk through and the blood runs down. I am the door. The door. It's always the way to covenant relationship with God is the doorway. Put the blood on the top and on the sides of the door and everyone who enters through will be spared and everyone who enters through will find mercy. Everyone who enters through will find grace instead of judgment as I judge the land. And now here's Jesus. I am the door. And look, on the sides of my doorpost, there's the blood running down and on the lintel, there's the blood overflowing. And if you pass through me, you will enter into covenant with God and you will be spared and find mercy and find grace instead of judgment. This thread of covenant weaves from the old all the way through the new. And everything that Abraham and God did together, God, Jesus came and did with us. And it starts here with the walls of blood. It starts with what, what, what gave Abraham access to the covenant with God. It was his belief that led to his right standing. It's our belief that leads us to the doorway that is Jesus. And we pass through the walls of blood. And we enter in to a life with Him. 
first time an innocent man's blood is shed and lands on the ground, it screams out from the ground. Remember in Genesis 4.9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, for it has, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The first time the blood of an innocent man fell on the ground, it screamed for justice, and man was cursed because of it. But the second time, the second time the blood of an innocent man falls on the ground, it screams mercy. As Jesus, hanging on a cross, says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And the blood of Abel is silenced by the blood of Jesus as it falls to the ground and is soaked up by the land. And where man was once cursed because of the shedding of innocent blood hitting the ground, through this, men are blessed because of the shedding of innocent blood hitting the ground. And the blood of Abel is silenced forever in the blood of Jesus, which Hebrews tells us, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. This is what you've not been called to. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who, is in, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel called out for, ju- for justice. It demanded that there be justice and man was cursed. The blood of Jesus screams out for mercy. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the cry of Jesus' blood forever silences the demand of Abel's. Justice is met. Justice is served. And it's by entering and passing through the walls of blood. I am the door. God's people pass through the door marked with blood. And they find mercy, grace, and salvation. It always has been. It always will be. No longer are we required to go and find a lamb and put its blood on the door. Jesus sent a lamb. God sent a lamb. His name was Jesus. And His blood was sprinkled on the door. And then Jesus invites every one of us to come in. God, I, I... Thank you, God, for Jesus. I thank you for the blood, for the walls of blood. God, that you passed through with Abraham committing yourself to this covenant that we passed through in Jesus committing ourselves. God, I thank you that we are equally bound in this covenant. You guys know how they would shake hands when they made covenant. We're going to talk about this when we talk about the cutting, but I just someone needs to hear this today. They would cut wrists, and then they would shake hands like this, and when they grasped onto each other's wrists, then the blood would flow between the two bodies. And that's significant, and we're going to talk about that, but there's another thing that goes on. Harrison, stand up real quick. If I shake your hand like this, and I let go, you have nothing. But if we shake hands like this, it doesn't matter if you let go, I've got you. And it doesn't matter if I let go, you've got me. And this is what God was wanting to show. That this covenant that I'm making with you is not based on your ability to hold on to my hand. It's based on the fact that I'm reaching down and locking hands with you and locking arms with you. And I'm grasping onto your arm. And you can let go if you want to, but I'm holding on to you. And I've got you right here and I won't let you go. Let go. It doesn't matter. It's not because of him. It's because Jesus Christ reached down and grabbed hold of us. He's not ashamed to call you brother. It's a binding covenant between God and man. It's a big deal. And knowing the details of the covenant, knowing the promises of the covenant are what make us able to stand before God and believe and put faith in the promises. And we're going to be for a while now. It's going to take us a while. I'm just asking you guys to have some patience. Because this is a massive subject and it's so, so, so important. I feel the weight of this message unlike any message I think I've ever preached. I really, it keeps me up at night. Like in a good way, but it's, it's heavy. There's something to this. 
Because to the man that understood covenant, you look through the history of the gospel, you look through the history of the Bible, you look through the history of the church, the man who understands covenant is a man that walks in the favor and the anointing of God. Not because God has favorites, but because God's looking for those who are faithful. His eyes search to and fro, looking for those who, who are faithful, who put their faith in Him, who believe. God, I, I thank You for this. I, I just thank You for Your Word. I, I ask that we would all, God, be able to, like Abraham, forsake everything when You call us and go to the, where You've called us to be. God, if we've stopped short, if we've pitched tents anywhere else, God, if we've made our dwelling anywhere else, if we've lodged anywhere, God, even if it's just for a little while, I pray that you would begin to speak again to us and move us out of where we are to where you have us to be, God. God, I pray that not one person in here would be comfortable anywhere but where you've called them to be. God, that we would never settle in and become comfortable and look back and say it's better than where I was, God, that we would only be comfortable when we know that this is where you've called me to be. I pray for that, God. I pray for restlessness inside of us, God, that won't leave us alone until we begin moving in the direction that you've called us to, to move if we're not there already. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your covenant. I thank you, God, that you reached down and grasped my arm, God. That even if I was to let go, you've got a hold of me. That you let me know through covenant. When Abraham said, how will I know this? Your answer was, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a binding contract with you, Abraham, that cannot be broken. That there is love stronger than death. That we have that same covenant with you, God. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.